Hebrews chapter 3, we begin in verse 1. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him that appointed him, as also Moses was faithful in all his house. For this man was counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who hath builded the house hath more honor than the house. For every house is builded by some man, but he that built all things is God. And Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after. But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house are we? if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. And then look with me in the next chapter, if you would. Chapter 4, just one verse here, verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, Let us hold fast our profession. And then chapter 10, if you would. Chapter 10, verse 23 and 24. It was therefore necessary... Oh, wait, I'm in the wrong chapter. Sorry, that's chapter 9. Chapter 10 is where I want to be. Verses 23 and 24, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. Amen. We'll end our reading in verse 24 of chapter 10. And we know the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. I wonder if you picked up on the common word. I did place a little bit of an emphasis. I didn't uh, make it uh, too obvious so as to give it away, but uh, you may have picked up on the word profession. The word profession. Look again, chapter 3, verse 1. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. Chapter 4, verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. In chapter 10, In verse 23, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. The Hebrew Christians were being intensely pressured to do the very opposite of these exhortations. Instead of holding fast their profession of faith, they were being pressed and pressed severely to let go of their profession of faith. The Apostle Paul, before his conversion, 
shows us what kind of pressure was being applied to these ancient Christian Jews. The language at the beginning of Acts chapter 9 is very vivid in the way it describes the pressure of persecution. Listen to what it says in Acts 9 and verse 1, where we read, And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest. Breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord. That phrase is a single word in the Greek that only occurs in Acts 9 and verse 1. The Greek lexicon makes this remark about that word threatenings and slaughter. Okay, it makes this remark. Threatenings and slaughter were, so to speak, the element from which he drew his breath. As if to suggest then that Saul of Tarsus, before his conversion, he was breathing, he was inhaling and exhaling threatenings and slaughter against those that would identify with Jesus Christ. The imagery that comes to my mind is that of an angry bull in a china shop. He pounds his hoof on the floor and he snorts angrily through his nostrils and then he cuts loose and destroys everything around him. I think that's a pretty accurate picture of the Apostle Paul before Christ in his glorious appearance appeared to him on the Damascus road and broke Saul of Tarsus from his madness. And for a time following Saul's conversion, we read how the church had rest. But I dare say it didn't have rest for very long. That even though the devil had lost, I suppose, one of his favorite vessels in terms of its usefulness, I'm sure that there were others that came forward and took Saul of Tarsus' place. Everywhere that Paul went, it seems, there would be an angry Jewish mob to contend with him, a mob that would labor with the same fury that Paul himself once knew. They would seek to dissuade Christians, and especially Christians that were Jews, to let go of their professions of faith in Christ. And so the author of Hebrews, who may very well have been Paul himself, found it necessary to exhort his readers both positively and negatively. Positively, you find the exhortations in the verses we just read, especially chapter 4, verse 14, and chapter 10, verse 23. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith. He says on those two occasions. Well, there is the positive aspect of encouraging the people of God. Don't let go. Don't abandon it. Don't give up on Christ. Don't let go of your profession of faith in him. Negatively, he warned them in the most solemn words about the consequences of letting go of their faith instead of holding it fast. And so we read his words in Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse 4. 
For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. Oh, the solemnity of that warning is such that it's created misimpressions in the minds of some theologians about the possibility of a Christian losing his salvation. Well, basically what Paul is stressing in those verses is you give up on him. You abandon your profession of faith. You discard it. You let go of it. Basically, there's no hope for you. He stresses this again in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. Listen to these words. For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, the knowledge of the truth there being the truth of Christ and the truth of the gospel, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sorer punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and hath done despot unto the Spirit of grace. Oh, very serious and solemn warnings indeed for those who would fail to hold fast their profession. Now, the devil's design and desire hasn't changed throughout the course of church history. His aim is the same today as it was in the days of the early church. Peter issues the same kind of exhortation as what's found in our text. And in his exhortation, he describes the activity of the devil when he exhorts his readers to be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. This is why so much of the content of the epistles in the New Testament are taken up with encouraging and equipping the Christian to resist such an adversary and to hold fast your profession of faith. I want to look at these verses in Hebrews this morning, therefore, and show you before we're done how partaking of the Lord's Supper becomes a means by which we hold fast our profession of faith. So again, the words of Hebrews 10, verse 23, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. Let's think first of all on the meaning of professing our faith. What exactly is the author saying here when he says to hold fast your 
profession of faith. Four times in the New Testament, the Greek word is translated by our English word, profess. In one instance, the Greek word is translated by the word, the English word, confession. So profession, confession, same word. Listen to the way Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, verses 12 and 13. He says, Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art also called, and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. So there we find our words again. I give thee charge in the sight of God, who quickeneth all things, and before Christ Jesus who before Pontius Pilate witnessed a good confession. Same word. So you have right there in those two verses, the word profession and the word confession makes for some interesting meditation to contemplate what confession Christ is referring to when he stood before Pilate. Okay, um, Christ Jesus, who before Pontius Pilate witnessed a good confession. Well, what confession was that? Could it be Pilate's acknowledgement that he found, and he confesses this a number of times, I think three, I didn't go through and actually count them, but if memory serves me right, three times you find Pilate acknowledging with regard to Christ that he found no fault in him. That would certainly be a good and an accurate confession. Be that as it may, you begin to see the meaning then of your profession of faith. It's the same thing that you confess. And when you trace the word confess a little more deeply in the New Testament, you see a very close connection between confession with salvation. Romans 10 and verse 6, familiar verses. But the righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this wise, Say not in thine heart who shall ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above, or who shall descend into the deep, that is, to bring up Christ again from the dead. But what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart, that is, the word of faith which we preach, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved." For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. This is one of the reasons you know that first-time partakers of the communion elements go before the elders and then stand up here on the platform with me in front of the congregation 
before partaking of communion for the first time. It's for this purpose that they may have opportunity to demonstrate to all by the confession of their mouths that they're Christians and that they believe in Jesus Christ. They publicly confess him before others that likewise have confessed him to be their Savior. To profess, then, means to confess. And to confess means, literally, to say the same thing as another, to agree with or assent, to declare openly, to speak out freely. I love that lexicon definition, and I think that further explains the purpose for which we have folks stand before the congregation uh, on occasion of their first partaking of communion so that they can speak out openly, declare openly, and speak out freely. When you confess Christ, you see, you are saying in effect that you agree with the testimony of Scripture concerning Christ. You agree with God the Father's confession of Christ as being his only begotten Son. As I was scrolling through the forms of this word in a Greek lexicon, I came across a slightly different form of the word that's recorded for us in 1 Timothy 3.16. did a series on this verse a few years back where Paul writes, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in the glory. We certainly have in that statement a very strong statement pertaining to Christ. You could say there is a verse uh, that is rich in its Christology, if you will. What I'm now calling your attention to, though, is that phrase at the beginning of the verse where it says, and without controversy. That's a negative statement in our English translation, but it's a positive word, in the original Greek rendering, it could be translated by the word confessedly. Confessedly, great is the mystery of godliness, and so on and so forth. I like the authorized version translation of the word because I think it gives even greater force to what we confess. We confess Christ. We confess him to have come in the flesh. We confess him to have been preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in the glory. These matters of faith, you could say, are without controversy to us. We confess them. In other words, we say the same things about Christ that the Bible says about Christ. <coughs> Now the world in its unbelief may dispute these things and deny these things and they may see fit to argue and debate about these things. For our parts as Christians, they are without controversy. So we confess them. We acknowledge them. 
and confess them. You see then what it means to profess faith in Christ? This is the profession that we're admonished to hold fast. And in Hebrews 10 and verse 23, we're instructed as to the manner in which we're to hold fast this profession. We're to hold it fast, Paul writes, without wavering. Without wavering means that we're not vacillating. You remember the studies we've been doing in Elijah. We'll get back to Elijah. You remember that the contest that took place between Elijah and uh, the prophets of Baal, that the people at that time uh, were divided as to what their opinion was. They really had no opinion that ran very deep as to who was God, God or Baal. You could say there's a perfect Old Old Testament illustration of what it means to waver. They were vacillating. They were harboring doubts. We are to abandon such a thing. We are to hold fast our profession without wavering. Or in other words, we take our stand on our profession. We are firmly resolved and will not be moved from the truth of Jesus Christ. Brings to mind the words of Paul to the Ephesians in that sixth chapter where he describes the Christian's armor. In Ephesians 6 and verse 13, we're told to take unto you the whole armor of God that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand, stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth and so on and so on. Stand therefore. Hold fast your profession without wavering. Stand therefore. So you get a little bit of the meaning of what it means to profess faith. Let's move on to consider for a moment or two the substance of our profession. What do we confess when we profess faith in Christ? Well, I've touched upon some of those things already from 1 Timothy 3.16. That's the verse with all those statements that pertain to Christ's incarnation and to his earthly ministry and to his ascension into heaven. But turning our attention to these verses in Hebrews, where profession is mentioned, we see a number of statements in those verses that also pertain to Christ. Listen again to the words of Chapter 3 and verse 1, I believe this may be the only verse in the New Testament, I could be wrong on this, but it may be the only verse that refers to Christ with the use of one of these terms, where the author writes, Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. Consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. Usually when we think of apostles, we think of those high-ranking disciples of Christ, don't we? We think of Paul and Peter and James and John and so on. But here in this text, we're told to consider Christ 
who is the apostle of our profession. It's actually a very appropriate title for Christ. An apostle, you see, means literally one who is sent, a sent one, a messenger, in other words, is an apostle. That's the literal meaning of the term. And how often during the course of his earthly ministry did Christ refer to the fact that he had been sent by his Father? I didn't take the time to track all the references, but I'll give you a sampling from John's Gospel. In chapter 3, verse 17, For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And in chapter 4 and verse 34, Jesus saith unto them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me, and to finish his work. And in chapter 5, verse 24, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word, and believeth on him that sent me, hath everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. And many more instances could be cited in which Christ refers to himself as having been sent by his Father. In connection with Christ being the apostle of our profession then, we could say that this title applied to his mediatorial role as our prophet is appropriate Our shorter catechism asks the question in question 24, how doth Christ execute the office of a prophet? To which the answer is given, Christ executeth the office of a prophet in revealing to us by his word and spirit the will of God for our salvation. Christ as our prophet, Christ as the sent one, Christ as the apostle. We learn of salvation through Christ. Indeed, we learn of God himself through Christ. In John chapter 1 and verse 18, we're told, No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. And that word declare means literally he exegeted him. We sometimes refer to a style of preaching that is called exegetical preaching. That is simply the kind of preaching that explains the Word of God. It draws out of Scripture the truth of what it says. It stands in contrast to a wrong approach to Scripture, which is sometimes called eisegesis, which is the practice of reading something into the Scripture. That we want to avoid. We want to exegete or draw out of the Scripture. And what we are told in John 1 and verse 18, when it says that Christ has declared his Father, it means literally he has exegeted him, or in other words, simply put, Christ explains God. 
And he also explained how he was on a mission devised by God before the creation of the world in which Christ himself would accomplish salvation by his perfect life and his atoning death. So Christ is the apostle of our profession, but note also he's the high priest of our profession as well. Again, the words of Hebrews 3, Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. So not only are we pointed to his prophetic office, but we're also pointed to his priestly office as well. I won't take the time to delve into that too much, but this epistle to the Hebrews, one of the primary aims behind it is to demonstrate this, that the Old Testament priesthood has been rendered obsolete because a greater priest has come, the high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. This more than anything is what got the Apostle Paul into hot water, you know. And not hard to envision. Why? For thousands of years, the sacrificial, the Levitical sacrificial system had been the mode of worship in Old Testament times. And now the author of this letter is saying that is the case no more. Uh, it's been fulfilled by a greater priest, Christ Jesus, the high priest of our profession. So we're pointed here to his prophetic office. And again, if I can refer to our shorter catechism, question 25 asks the question, how doth Christ execute the office of a priest? And the answer, Christ executeth the office of a priest in his once offering up of himself. And it's important to underscore that word once. You'll find that emphasized in Hebrews also. This is a once-for-all sacrifice, his once-for-all offering up of himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God and in making continual intercession for us. We're called upon then to consider him. Consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. I'll have more to say about this shortly, but for now let me at least mention that the Lord's table is the appropriate place for us to consider Christ, the apostle and high priest of our profession. Consider him in his prophetic office. Consider him in his priestly office. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 14 adds another term to his priestly office. He's not only our high priest, but he is there termed our great high priest. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. The fact that he is in that verse called great and the added fact that he has passed into the heavens 
certainly brings to our minds the truth of his kingly office. There is a verse in Zechariah. I should have looked it up. It's a prophetic statement. It foretells the time when Christ will sit and rule upon his throne and will be a priest upon his throne and the council of peace will be between them both. He is both priest and king upon his throne. He's earned his position at his father's right hand as king. And I love the way this is expressed very early in the epistle to the Hebrews. In the very beginning of this epistle, we read, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the world's who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. What a glorious picture and what a vivid picture of who Christ is and what he's done and what he has earned the right to do. Here, then, is where he sits with all power and authority committed to him by his Father. And as our king, Catechism question 26, he subdues us to himself, he rules and defends us, and he restrains and conquers all his and our enemies. So he's the apostle and high priest of our profession, and he's our great high priest. In that same verse, chapter 10, verse 23, he's also said to be the Son of God. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. Now in the course of this epistle to the Hebrews, the author will argue for the necessity of Christ being a man. And we confess him to be a man. He could not represent men before God without becoming one of them. But he's also God. He's Jesus, the Son of God. And he could not accomplish what he set out to accomplish without being God. Only the God-man, Christ, you see, could endure and prevail over the wrath of God when it was unleashed upon him when he hung upon Calvary's cross. Only the God-man could prevail in such a way that he would be able eventually to announce, it is finished. Justice is satisfied. My people are redeemed. I have atoned for their sins. They now belong to me. I purchased them. It is finished. It seems then, doesn't it, that when we're called on to consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, well, there's a whole lot for us to consider, isn't there? 
And now before we partake of the elements of the communion table, let me just say a word here finally about the sacrament's contribution to our profession of faith. Biblical Protestants have recognized, certainly since the days of the Reformation and probably before, that there are but two sacraments that have a biblical basis for them. Those sacraments are baptism and the Lord's Supper. Both sacraments contribute to a person's profession of faith. When a person comes of age who was not baptized as a child, which is the case, what you find in the book of Acts most often, that person professes faith in Christ by his or her baptism. Baptism, you can argue, is an ordinance that is stamped with divine authority. It becomes the divinely ordained way for a sinner to identify with Christ. In ancient times, this sacrament was taken so seriously that if you hadn't been baptized, you would not be regarded as a Christian no matter what you confessed with your mouth. You'd be deemed a hypocrite rather than a Christian if you weren't baptized. The Roman Empire wouldn't even feed you to the lions if you hadn't been a baptized Christian. I've always thought upon baptism the same way you might think about marriage. Christ was baptized before he commenced his earthly ministry. It was his way of officially identifying with the people that he represented. It was like him saying to his father, with regard to his people, I take them to be mine, so that my action will count for them. There's a sense then in which you could say that when a believer becomes baptized, his baptism answers to the baptism of Christ. It's the believer's way of saying to Christ that you take him in that same official way that he's taken you. You take him to be your Savior. Now, I know that it's possible to make too much of baptism, Paul had that problem with the Corinthians, and the problem was so acute that it made him thankful that he hadn't baptized any of them, with only a few exceptions. But on the other hand, I wouldn't go too far in playing down the significance of baptism. It's an official way of professing faith in Christ. Where infants are concerned, on the other hand, your baptism was an official way in which your parents gave you to Christ. Your baptism symbolizes their highest and deepest and strongest desires for you. And if the question be asked, how does a baptized infant profess faith in Christ the way a believer professes faith in Christ at his baptism? And the answer to the question is that the person who was baptized as an infant validates his or her baptism by partaking of the Lord's table. 
There comes a time in life, in the life of a baptized infant, that he needs to validate his profession of faith. His or her failure to validate their baptism at some point constitutes a profession of its own. It's a profession that basically strongly implies or says, I'm not a Christian. I have doubts about Christ. Or I have doubts about myself. Oh, may the Lord give compelling grace to those that may harbor any doubts. So here around the Lord's table then, we likewise profess our faith in Christ. We pledge ourselves to him anew and afresh. We say to him with humble praise and thanksgiving, Lord, I confess my faith in you. You are all my hope and peace. You are all my righteousness. My faith is in you, O Lord, and I thank thee for taking my place on Calvary's cross. What a blessing, then, to use this table this morning as a means through which we hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. We confess Christ. We confess our faith in him. May the Lord himself draw near to us then and grant us his presence as we hold fast the professions of our faith without wavering in our remembrance of him. Let's close then in prayer before we distribute the elements. And let's all pray. O Lord, as we draw near to thee now, we pray that thou wilt quicken us by thy spirit. We thank thee for this wonderful opportunity thou hast ordained whereby we can confess Christ again. We can profess our faith in him. We thank thee, Lord, that thou art indeed the apostle and high priest of our profession. We thank thee that thou art the Son of God and the Son of Man. We thank thee for thy willingness to come into this world. We thank thee for the life thou didst live while thou wast in this world. We thank thee for the way thou didst identify with thy people and take them to thyself even through thy baptism. O oh Lord, we ask of thee now to draw near to us as we steadfastly hold to our profession of faith and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of all and that he is our Savior and Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.